Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity Podcast, where our goal is to help educate health and fitness professionals, as well as the general population, reach their ultimate capacity on any and all fronts. What can you do to optimize your capacity? All right, everybody, having uh, another interview-based podcast today, sitting down with uh, Dr. Justin Roth, he is an orthopedic surgeon with a specialization in pediatric health and wellness. He is at the Center in Bend, Oregon. Uh, really awesome doc. I've gotten to know him over the years. He's got an interesting pathway where he started off more as like an engineer and then kind of pivoted into medicine. Um, but the big topic we're going to be trying to break down is like, when do we feel like it's appropriate for surgery in the pediatric population, and when should we maybe try to limit or avoid it? We go over several cases, ACL, scoliosis, hip impingement. We go over more just like patient population management with pediatrics. Um, a lot of good info. Uh, like I said, I've gotten to know him for through the years. He's helped me with some of my kids and injuries as well. So really good guy, but also really well-educated uh, top-level thinker and also just really good at, at speaking and kind of voicing what his thoughts are. Um, so I hope you, you enjoy the podcast and, uh, more fun content to come. All right, guys. Enjoy. All right, Dr. Roth, thanks for, uh, taking the time today to sit down. I'm excited to hear your approach and your overall philosophy on treating the pediatric, uh, population. I want us to get into management kind of surgical versus non-surgical in pediatrics, which I think can be an interesting discussion and a little tricky at times. Um, but before we get into that, can we just get a little recap of where you're currently at, how you got to where you're at, your just kind of background? Yeah. Hey, Nick, thanks for thanks for having me. It's, it's kind of interesting to do something like this. I've never done a podcast before. So yeah. See how it yeah. Goes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my background is a little bit different. Right, so I was uh, actually a mechanical engineer for the first part of my career for about seven and a half years, and then I went back to med school in my my late twenties. Um, I got pretty interested in in mission work at the time. So um, anyway, went through med school and uh, fellowship in, or- in orthopedics at the County Hospital in Riverside, which is a a pretty heavy level one trauma center in the Southern California area. Um, and then I did a fellowship out in the Midwest in St. Louis at Washington University in Pediatric Orthopedics. So, I mean, that's kind of how I got here, I the long and the short of it. But I guess I got interested in in orthopedics through mission work and, and really pediatric orthopedics through uh, the desire to do more mission work as I get older. Yeah. Um, so one question is, how do you, if someone's going to go see an orthopedist and they have a kid... How do you know if an orthopedist has like a background in pediatrics? I mean, it might say it on their bio, but how do you know if you're seeing somebody who truly sees that population? Because it's rare, or at least less common. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I guess one, you have to understand that every orthopedic surgeon that trains in the United States does at least three or four months, depending on the program of, of pediatric orthopedics. In other words, they spend three or four months in a children's hospital um, you know, essentially as a, as a junior resident, some programs spend more, I mean, my particular program, I spent eight months, um, you know, but in general, I think all pediatric or, or all, all orthopedic surgeons are capable of treating, you know, kind of run of the mill cherry vanilla type pediatric injuries, right? Basic pediatric fracture care, 
some sports injuries, um, and things of that nature. And then, you know, a, a pediatric orthopedist, somebody like myself, is someone who has done an extra year of focused training, you know, so has a, a, a pediatric fellowship, you know, and they've gone to a, a program that's been designated by by POSNO, the Pediatric Orthopedic Society in North America, as a, a pediatric fellowship that fulfills all the, the criteria. Uh, and, and it's a little bit different. You know, you, a lot of people may know their orthopedist, you know, in the adult world as, you know, the guy that sees knees, the guy that sees, or, or gal that sees shoulders, um, you know, spine surgeon, etc. But pediatric orthopedists are, are really a little bit different because we operate all over the body. Uh, so we're trained in spine surgery, hip surgery, fracture surgery, uh, adolescent sports medicine. So it's it's a it's a pretty rigorous and and there's a lot more variety, you know, than other areas of orthopedics. So what would be some injuries that you'd recommend seeing a pediatric orthopedist? So I would say fractures that involve the growth plate would be the would be the number one. I think you have to know, you know, when to operate, uh, when not to operate, and when it's going to be okay. In other words, when that growth plate's going to remodel, uh, and when maybe that fracture just needs a little bit of a push, or needs to be set kind of in the right direction in a cast, and doesn't necessarily need a plate and screws or or, or pins. So and I think that's probably the biggest reason. You know, beyond that, it's some of the more obscure or, or rare pediatric diagnoses, and that can be anything from, um, you know, a mass on your child's leg uh, to a leg length discrepancy to a curvature of their spine, um, you know, hip pain, hip problems, hip impingement, uh, and then kids with, with any kind of a neuromuscular diagnosis. That can be kids with spina bifida, cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. um, you know, any, any spastic or, or hypotonic type of condition. Yeah. Um, so for people who might not know what like, uh, orthopedist does in general, but specifically the pediatric population, right? So we, like you're saying, fractures, ligament tears, maybe some growth plate issues in your bones. Um, but what is like, uh, what is like a first visit look like? Are you doing, some sort of physical exam? Is there obviously maybe some sort of imaging involved? What are some indications for different kind of imaging? But just to give like a quick little snapshot of what would like a daily visit or that initial visit, and we could come up with a diagnosis if it helps, but just kind of curious what like a flow would look like for a a case for you. Yeah, I think it all depends on the age of the patient and why you're coming to see us. Yeah. If it's a a baby, you know, or you're, you know, one, two, three years old, you know, the chances of me getting an x-ray are probably <laughs> somewhat limited, right? Unless yeah. we're talking about a hip condition and we don't want to miss hip dysplasia or, or we don't want to miss certain foot conditions. But a lot of that uh, type of discussion or type of visit is a lot of reinforcement and a lot of education on what um, what's normal, what's not normal, and what to expect um, for your child's growth over the next three, four, five, six, seven years. Yep. Um, I think as you get into, you know, injuries when you're a little bit older, say, you know, kind of like early adolescence, you know, seven to 12 years old, an x-ray is pretty common. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, a first place to start. Make sure there's not any uh, deformity and growth plate issue. You know, we look for some, some funny things, some masses, some areas of, of cartilage breakdown you know, or, or an, an OCD or something that we can yeah. potentially see on x-ray as the child enters early adolescence. 
Um, you know, but I, I would say the, the hallmark of most visits is education and and really talking through what's normal and what to expect going forward. Um, you know, depending on the condition, you know, MRIs, CTs, and yeah. uh, and other advanced imaging might be indicated. But I try and limit it for the cost of the family and, and for the cost of the health system where I can. Yeah. Do you struggle with subjective sometimes? Because you might ha- have a nine-year-old actually give you much as a subjective, or how do you get around that? Do you have to talk to the parents a lot, or? Yeah, I mean it's it's different depending on the on the kid. I think yeah. most of the time, you know, the the child can tell you where it hurts. Yeah. Or the parents got a, a pretty good idea uh, of what's going on. They can usually give a pretty good history. Yeah. Um, over you know the last few months, um, it can be tough. Some some kids can be pretty quiet. And you have to coax it out of them. Yeah. And you know, unfortunately, if they don't say much, you, most of the treatment goes by way of X-ray. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, for the most part. The, the vast majority of what we do can be treated, you know, based on it on X-ray exam and imaging. Right? Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, we do we do what we can to get <laughs> as much information out of the kid as possible. Yeah, some are yeah. better than others. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's get in a little bit of like the surgery versus not surgery discussion. So I think there's some obvious cases like a you know complete ACL tear, like you're saying, a complex fracture that maybe isn't at the growth point and needs some fixation. Um, I think trickier things can be maybe scoliosis, maybe more small meniscal issues, maybe an ACL sprain versus full tear. Um, and at least from my experience, and you're maybe in the same boat is, and I get it, people are just like, whatever's the quickest way to fix it, I just want to go do it and fix it, where they don't necessarily have the perspective of what this could mean. 10, 20, 30, 40 years later down the road if we're dealing with a pediatric person. Um, what are some of the, like, I guess we could probably go over a, a diagnosis might be the best way, but like, what are some of your criteria to maybe rule out like a surgical intervention? What's maybe safe for a fracture? Like you were kind of hinting at a little bit with like a growth plate issue. Like when would you not do surgery if maybe it would need fixation? Like what are some things that are like, Red flags, like, yeah, I'm not going to do surgery on this person. Yeah, so the first thing I think it's pretty important to understand is I'm not going to operate on a growth plate fracture uh, in general more than seven days out. So if your child does have an injury to their growth plate, um, whether that's a wrist injury, whether that's an injury to their tibia, it really needs to be evaluated within a week. Um, and the reason for that is is we know that if we manipulate that growth plate at greater than seven days, that that growth plate has a higher risk of going on to closure, right? In other okay. words, that, that growth plate shutting down. So if you're gonna do something about a growth plate, you do it early uh, and you tend to do it one time. In other words, multiple manipulations, you know, say the ED manipulates it, they don't get it right, and then I have to do it in the OR a few days later, that puts that growth plate at a higher risk of shutting down. So, so I think that's the, you know whether or not it's it's has growth plate involvement and whether or not it needs to be adjusted is is a pretty important early thing to look at. Um, if you don't get to it within seven days, I'm going to let it heal in whatever position it's in um, because it gives you the best chance of retaining the growth. And mm. if there's a deformity, then later on we would go back and do an osteotomy. That's the the safest way. Okay. And I think that's a that's probably the biggest difference between. Um, children's fractures and adult fractures is knowing 
when to leave it and when not to leave it. Because in an adult fracture, we're going to fix it no matter what, you know, two, three weeks yep. out. Whereas a children's fracture, we may give it a year or more to remodel mm. and see where you end up. Because nine times out of ten, you're, you're probably going to end up with something that's quite acceptable. And if we need to fix it later, it's it's fairly easy in that population. How young would you go on an, uh, fixing an ACL? Is there evidence that supports there's like a cutoff age? I guess every case is different. But. Yeah, I mean, the, it's tough, right? So, one, I don't think any ACL ever has to be fixed, right? So yeah. I, don't, I don't think that, I, mean, I don't care whether you're 50 years old or, or whether you're six years old. I think that's, yeah. just, that's just my opinion. You know, I, I always tell patients that I have a, a good friend that I grew up skiing with that was still doing backflips in his 40s without yeah. an ACL. <laughs> so I yeah. mean, you can be quite athletic and live a very healthy life without yeah. an ACL. Uh, that said, we are fixing a lot of them. Um, I, I mean, the youngest ACL I've ever fixed is six years old. Um, and I think we get more aggressive about fixing them when the, when the child's really young. Um, and because we've got some techniques that one completely spare the, the growth plates and they completely spare, you know, actually even going intra-articular um, in that population. And I think that's important um, just for them to grow in terms of stability in their knee and the development of the rest of their knee, their, their collaterals, their PCL. Um, so that, that's a little bit of a different animal. I mean, that yeah. doesn't tend to be uh, a sports injury at that age. Um, those tend to be, you know, patients more with congenital issues. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, as you get older, uh, you know, we tend to fix a fair number of ACLs once you get to be 12, 13 years old. Um, and again, that's really based on a, a decision with the parents, right? So the old, and I shouldn't say the old, another, um, you know, line of thinking is that we treat it non-operatively. Uh, we brace the patient and we try and give them, you know, every opportunity to get to an adult age so they can have an adult ACL, right? Got In other it. words, um, have a, a reconstruction that doesn't have to avoid their growth plates. So... You know, kind of general rules of thumb, if you've got four years of growth remaining, I'm going to try and spare both your growth plates, your femur and okay. your tibia, um, which makes things a little more complex and the, the repair or the reconstruction is not quite as robust as an adult ACL. Graph choices are a little bit different. Uh, if you get two years of growth remaining, I will spare just your femoral physis and I will go across your tibia, your, your yeah. tibial physis. Okay. Um, and then as you get closer to a, you know, a year or less of growth remaining, it becomes more Let's like, a, like an adult ACL. Okay. So, um, you know, the biggest reason I think to fix the ACL is, or to reconstruct the ACL, we can talk about, you know, fixing it in a minute, yeah. but it is really for meniscal preservation. Okay. You know, and for cartilage preservation. I mean, it's it's never, no matter what we do, I think we're getting better. Uh, it's never going to be the same knee that you had natively yeah. in terms of biomechanics. But, you know, the ACL is a primary stabilizer of your knee for lateral movements and rotary movements. And, and right after that's your lateral meniscus. Yeah. And when you start breaking down your lateral meniscus at a young age, um, you know, you're asking for knee problems coming into your 30s and 40s. Yeah. So that's that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. Okay. Um, but... I definitely don't fault parents for, um, you know, for going the non-operative route yeah. or giving it a try. Yeah. So one thing I've been seeing more, yeah, which is kind of what you're hinting at, is like repairing it versus truly like a reconstruction. And is the train of thought there if it's truly like a sprain versus a complete tear? 
depending on the location of it, is that what would facilitate a repair? What is the, how do you differentiate those two? How do you decide if you're going to truly put in like a graft or try to repair what's left? Yes. So this is a good question. Um, and it's, it's a little bit more pertinent, I think, when you get to be about 30, 35. Right? Okay. That's kind of the, yeah. the, the more common data recently. So I guess repair versus reconstruction. You know, reconstruction, we're using a graft that we're generally harvesting from you, and mm-hmm. we're taking the old AC out and putting a new one in, essentially. Drilling bone tunnels. It's a little bit bigger deal. Um, a repair is generally indicated when you have an avulsion. In other mm-hmm. words... Um, it's usually femoral sided where you pull off a little piece of bone with where the ligament attaches. Um, so if you can think about it, you would, if you were able to repair that bone back to where it came from, you get a little bit of bone to bone healing, right? So you get a little bit of strength in your, yeah, in kind of your interface there. But I think the problem you have to understand is in order for that ACL to be torn, even if it's the, the little piece that avulsed off, and this is the same is true for like an MPFL for the mm-hmm. dislocation yeah. is that ligament's been stretched out. I mean, yeah. you, you've taken that, that rubber band, so to speak, and you've stretched it, you know, past its load to failure. Yeah. Right. And it's, you're going to have some elongation that you're not going to get back. Right. So that ACL, it may heal, but it's typically going to scar down with a little bit more length and you get a little more laxity. So for that reason, the, the data right now, um, at least the way I interpret it, is that when you get to be about 30, 35, there's some fairly good results with ACL repair. Um, and and what the, the thought behind yeah, that is yeah. that as you get older, people tend to modify their activities, right? I mean, you have an ACL yeah, surgery yeah, yeah. in your early 30s, and you're just not going to be as aggressive as you were when you were 22. Yeah, yeah. Um, ju- just by the nature of who you are, right? You yeah. have to work, you've got a family, you've got you know, things that you need to do. So you're going to be a little easier on your knee. You're probably going to treat the rehab a little bit more responsibly. Um, that same, I guess that's, that those same results have not borne out in the pediatric and adolescent population. Okay. In other words, the failure rates are still higher than a reconstruction. Oh, really? Okay. Right? I mean, some people would quote um, failure rates for an ACL and the adolescent, like particularly the female soccer player population, mm-hmm. upwards of 30%. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess knock on wood, think I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. I mean, that's a number that's very commonly quoted in the literature. Okay. So I I feel like if you repair an ACL in an adolescent um, and then expect them to go back to their same level of sport, I think you're, yeah, you're you're tempting fate a little bit, Um, Mm -hmm. but it is, it is less of a procedure. So I think it's an option for, for patients and families but I also think it's one that you know undergoes shared decision making. You got to talk a little bit about what the risks are, yep. and the risks of of tearing that are, are certainly there. But you haven't burned any bridges, and you can always reconstruct yeah. it if it's torn. true. Is the return to play supposedly quicker with that? Like, do they say you should, you know, like the six to nine month is more like four to six with a repair because it's less invasive, or is that not the train of thought? So theoretically, yeah, the return to play is quicker. Right? Yeah, I mean, so basically. I mean, if you if you look at, I mean, you could probably yeah. tell us better than I am, right? So, yeah. you know, most patients in the adolescent population have an ACL reconstruction that four to six months, they're kind of chomping at the bit to get yeah, back, right? Exactly. We're really waiting for, for the biology to take over, yep. for that ligament to be as strong as possible at nine months, whereas yeah. 
if they retain their ligament and you've repaired it, you know, theoretically it's not going to keep getting stronger. True. So, I mean, once they've got their bones their, healed and their muscular yeah. strength and coordination back, theoretically they're, they're back at a little bit earlier, four to six months. So maybe, you know, three or four months earlier than a reconstruction, but the risk of a, of a re-tear is higher. Yeah. Yeah. And, give and give and take. And if they do re-tear, you know, there's always that, that risk that they do more damage to their meniscus at that time, which is kind of what we're trying to stop. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, where do you think, I guess, particularly in the pediatric population, but everything, where do you think ACLs are going for the next, I don't know, if you could look ahead 25 years from now, do you think it'd be completely different than what we do now with maybe some new biologics? Do you think they're going to be repairing tissues somehow with so I growth could, or things? Yeah, I could see us getting better at repairing. Um, in other words, repairing using your native ligament yeah. uh, and using some different adjuvants, right? So people have looked at things like amniotic tissue, yeah. PRP. Yeah. I think I think those technologies are only going to get better and better. Um, you know, they're always going to be tested in the adult population first, and it's going to be slow for those to make the transition to the pediatric and adolescent population. I think those are, I think, so I think repair is going to get better and better. I think that's always something to watch. I also think, I think the biggest, so we look back at, you know, kind of graft choice. The gold standard originally was always a, a bone, patellar tendon yep. bone. I think yep. it's still the gold standard. Um, you know, we're moving more and more to quadriceps yeah, I've tendons. Seen that. Yeah. Uh, and I think the results are, are quite promising, especially when you compare it to autograft hamstrings. So yes. I think even in the adolescent population, we're starting to use more, more quadriceps, um, soft tissue grafts. So I think that's going to continue, you know, to, to evolve. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that almost completely displaces hamstring in a certain population, right? Um, the younger population is always going to be, I think, a hamstring population yeah. because you can get a bigger graft yeah. um, until that the patient's quads are big enough. Um, so I think that's that's one direction. I think the second, and I think the more exciting, at least for me, is you know back in 2013 we identified. I mean, we identified the same thing. We identified the <laughs> hundreds. Yeah. This anterolateral ligament, yeah. right, or this yeah. this other ALL. thickening in the, in the knee, and there was all this, you know, kind of um, I don't know, a lot of discussion about it. I mean, the reality is is that we called this thing a, a called a Sagan fracture, which yep. is a very unstable yeah. um, ACL. And that's been recognized for a long time. And somebody went back and redescribed this ligament, and we've had a lot more interest in reconstructing that ligament along with the ACL yep. um, to give uh, adjunctive, adjunctive, whatever. No, I know what you mean. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. Give, basically more to stability. give more strength and more stability, yeah. particularly in rotary instability. Huh. Um, and then it's it's when you use that, right? So, you know, we started using that more and more in the last five years. And I think the, you know, the idea was, hey, you should probably be reconstructing the ALL um, and or doing another technique, which I think is a little bit better, um, called a lateral extra-articular tenodesis, um, which uses a, a part of the IT band. Okay. So, anyway, whether you do one or the other, I think... Nobody's really decided which is better, um, but anyway, when when you do it is is kind of the big discussion, and I think, you know, for me the indications are all revisions. So anytime I do a revision, I mm -hmm. have it, um, and then patients that have a pivot shift after their yeah. ACL has been reconstructed. In other words, Ooh. we all we have all these 
we get these patients not infrequently. They have yeah. a very bad ACL injury. They might have a big cigar fracture. Yeah. They've got, you know, they've got an MCL injury. They've got a little posterolateral corner sprain. Yeah. And they, they have kind of a, I don't know, a baby multi-ligament, yeah. so yeah. to speak. And then you reconstruct their ACL, and even though it feels tight, um, they still have a little bit of laxity. They still yeah. have a little bit of pivot shift on the yeah. table. And those those patients, I think, get a lot of extra-articular tenodesis from me. Um, you know, there are there are surgeons around the world, I, I'm reading more and more, that are getting very aggressive with uh, doing this for all adolescents. I, I mean, I haven't got there, um, particularly yeah. the target has been, you know, that 14 to 16-year-old um, female soccer player. Yeah. Is, is, I mean, that's just that, common. That's yeah. the patient everybody yeah. talks about because, I mean, that tends to be the patient that, that retears. Yes. So yeah. I think there's more and more interest, and I wouldn't be surprised in the next five years if every ACL reconstruction doesn't get a lateral extra articular team of Okay. With it. That's interesting. I didn't know about that. Okay. Um do you do injections at all in the pediatric population? Is there like something that would indicate that, or is that not the? I mean, if you're going to a doctor and he's saying you need a steroid, is that justified at certain points? It's a slippery slope yeah, as well. I mean, for for me, I, I kind of this is the way I do injections. Uh, yeah, I don't. You know, hyaluronic acid injections, I think, is an adult arthritis yes, issue. Yes, exactly. And yeah, it it's basically been shown to be exactly the same as a corticosteroid. Yeah. So. Um, I look at it as a as a diagnostic and therapeutic modality, mainly for arthritic components. Yeah. Right. In other words, if they've got an arthritic component in the knee, give them an injection, it should get a little yeah. better. Yeah. Um, so in the adolescent population, I don't ever inject the knee because there's there's definitely data to say that regular injections or even one injection can have chondral a chondrolytic effect. Huh. Can, okay. Can negatively affect the cartilage. So. That being said, you know, on a rare occasion for a diagnostic purpose, you know, if somebody's got really severe IT band syndrome, yep. I may I may inject that area. Um, you know, again, I think the problem is when you're growing, those tissues tend to get a little bit indurated, right? And it tends to, yeah. to cause a little bit of necrosis of the fats. You yep. get, you know, you get a little bit of uh, you get a little bit of a cosmetic component that is just. Not yeah. really accepting yeah. that age yeah. I don't yeah. really see a need for it. So yeah. So yeah. No, I mean I'm not doing PRP, PRP injections yeah. in kids and I think but I'm more of a minimalist. You know, there there are others out there that are experimenting more more, yeah, more, more different things. Got it. Yeah. Um this is a good segue into like a question always an issue I know I have to deal with and curious to hear your insights is like the long term athlete development discussion slash early specialization slash kid who's just working out seven days a week and doesn't rest. And those are going to present usually more as an itis, patellar tendonitis, whatever, hip flexor issues. Um, Insert muscle. Yeah, insert muscle, anything. Yeah, depending Uh, depending (laughs) on the sport. And it's it's a particular issue in in Bend, I think, is yeah. we, you know, we've got to be one of the more athletic communities in yeah. the country. Yep. And we've got a a lot of kids that specialize quite early. I mean, uh, it seems like weekly there's a there's at least a few kids that come in, whether it's you know, they're swimming three or four hours a day, mm. five or seven days a week and they've got shoulder impingement, rotator yeah. cuff tendinopathy at yeah. 13 <laughs> you know, not, yeah not um, ideal you know and they've, they've had a couple mris and it's nothing there's nothing yeah. and there's really nothing to do other than rest yeah and that's a really hard discussion to have 
do you play bad cop? Like, do you go in and be like, hey, this is, or do you try to get around it? Or you'd be like, you gotta stop? Or like, sometimes saying no can make it worse. I don't, I don't know. It's a def- difficult situation. So we talk, yeah, we talk about this this topic quite a bit. Yeah. At pediatric meetings. Um, because it's, it's kind of an epidemic around yes. the country. Yeah. Right. And if you yeah. think back to, I don't know how, how old you are, but at least I think back to when I grew up, the yeah. number of kids that really specialized and played not much you know, yeah, when I was, soccer teams. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of everybody played their soccer season and yeah. then they went on to their ski season yeah, or their yeah. baseball season yep. or, or, you know, whatever it is. And, and we had enough time, uh, you know, where we were out riding our bikes and doing different uh, yeah. things that you kind of cross trained at yeah. baseline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, it seems like more and more, I will see athletes that, you know, for lack of a better word, they, they look like the Tiger Woods syndrome. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. they, they focus on one yeah. thing and you focus on one thing too early and your, your body generally, especially in the adolescent age, just can't take it. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's too much. I mean, yeah, I think one thing you have to realize with a developing skeleton and this is another, you know, kind of important, you know, pearl for, for pediatrics is the growth plate is, is weaker than the ligament. Right. So, uh, in other words, um, if you have an, an ankle sprain and you're 12 years old, it's not an ankle sprain the same as when you get older where you've stretched out that ATFL. Yeah. Right? Yep. It's, if you've got a, a, you know, an MCL sprain, you know, it's not just an MCL sprain isolated to the knee. A component of that is taken up by your growth plate, right? Because yeah. your growth plate, you know, is essentially, for lack of a better word, you know, hard gelatinous tissue. Right? Yeah. There's no, There's no real... Um, you know, collagen fiber capacity yeah. to it. So, yeah. so I mean, these overuse injuries, you know, little league shoulder and, mm-hmm. and baseball players are, I mean, they are growth plate injuries. Yeah. Right. At, yeah. At, at some level. And I don't think people think of it that way though. They think of it as just like, Oh, whatever the muscles weak and I can modulate something and keep playing or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they think <laughs> they lack the perspective. They think they can just play through it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, and generally speaking, you can. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, you your kid can play through the pain. Yep. But that pain's not going to go away or get better. No. Right. Yeah. And, then, and that's going to be instead of it have being a, you know, an acute tendinopathy or you know an irritation of the growth plate and apophysitis, it's going to become a, a chronic tendinopathy, yeah. which is chronic changes to to a tendon that are very difficult to yeah. work through. Yeah. Right. You know, even with you know modalities like. You know, you're at a stem and, and other things, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, traditionally we've worked through things like that, like in your 20s and early 30s. Yep. And you're starting to see more and more adolescents with this Do problem. It, yeah, yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, it's all about, I try and educate the family. It's all about cross-training. Yeah. It's all about, you know, having your, your child interested in a number of different things. So, I think focusing too early as a, both a, it can be both a, a physical issue. In other words, the body just can't uh-huh. take that repetitive motion over and over again. And there's really good data, and we look at it all the time in, in pediatric meetings, to show that kids burn out quicker, Yeah. right? I mean, in general, the kids that are going to make it through and be collegiate athletes and, and professional athletes when they specialize earlier, it's your chances are, are not really much yeah. greater. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete yeah. sense. So do you say... Okay, maybe instead of doing soccer seven days a week, spend two days and do something else. Like, what's your practical discussion there before they leave? Yeah, I mean, I think when they're in the season, 
uh-huh. you know, go for play it. Play hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. You know, I think seven days a week for any sport is too much. I agree. Yeah, I think yeah. five, five days a week is probably the max. Yeah. But when that season's done, stop. Yep. Right. A couple weeks off. Go camping with your family. Yep. And get into something else. Yeah. Right? yeah. Ride bikes. It's just. I think it's just it's having that rest from, you know, the overhand throwing in baseball for yep. three months. Yeah. Right. And then you know maybe you switch to soccer where it's a lower extremity yeah. running type. Of like a, it. Yeah. Type of an exercise and it just it's like a natural cross training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's pivot into the scoliosis, which is a whole another gamut here. But uh, you know, from my experience, especially obviously with like the youth with scoliosis, often it's like from holding patterns meeting. Maybe there's some sort of developmental delay where they didn't really learn how to walk appropriately. Maybe they have some sort of neurological deficit. Maybe it gets a breathing issue. Maybe they're just playing video games too much and they're just sitting like crap all day, every day. But regardless of the why behind it, what are your indications if you have to go in surgically for a scoliotic curve? Is there a degree or severity of curve? Is there an age frame? What's kind of your rule in, rule out surgery for scoliosis? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, the indication for scoliosis surgery is fairly rare. Um, so okay. the vast majority of scoliosis treatment is non-operative. And I think the vast majority of scoliosis I see is almost, I call it miliosis, it's spinal asymmetry. Yes. So yeah, you know, the like question that. is, um, yeah, I guess, well, I guess maybe start from the beginning. You know, what, yeah. what do we think causes scoliosis? Yeah. That's, a, that's a big topic. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why we call it adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Yep. Idiopathic meaning we don't know the cause. Right? Yeah. There's, we know there's a genetic component. We know it runs in families. Um, you know, the other thing is everybody looks at scoliosis and they've seen an X-ray or uh, they, you know, it's it's thought of as this S-shaped to your spine. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and really what it is is if you fix, you know, if you were to fix the top and the bottom of your spine, it's a uh, a torsional curve, right? So it's almost like a yeah. twist of the spine. So we. We tend to look at it in x-rays and just see it in, you know, the plane, you know, me looking at you head on or from the back or from the side, but it's really a, a three-dimensional deformity. Um, and it's it's thought to involve some different things. It's either asymmetric growth at the, at the growth plate of the spine, which, you know, can be from anything from a, a viral impact to the growth plate to some tethering of the growth plate to some you know, muscular asymmetry to, you know, could it be the, you know, the kid that's sitting around more, mm-hmm. you know, could it be the kid that's exercising more? Yeah. Just, I think there's, there's not really a good thought process there. You know, I think the one, one thing we know to try and get this across to families all the time is that if you have any curvature of your spine and you're an adolescent, we know that if you get 45 minutes, five days a week of aerobic exercise, you have almost no back pain even if you got a curve that's 40 plus degrees. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think, I mean, that's, that's one important thing yeah. to realize. So, and there's other causes to scoliosis. I mean, there's the neuromuscular population, yeah. which, I mean, they definitely get it from a muscular imbalance. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kids with spina bifida and cerebral palsy and, and some other issues, but that's kind of a separate yeah. population. Yep. I think what you're getting at is the, the adolescent idiopathic population. Yeah. And, you know, the vast majority come in and their their pediatrician has seen them. They've you know done the Adams four bend test. They've seen mm-hmm. a little bit of rotation. You know, some prominence in their rib cage, some elevation of their scapula and shoulders, and asymmetry of the iliac crest. Yep. And, and you know, X ray findings. You know, usually between about ten and twenty degrees of Cobb angle or that that major okay. angle is typically managed by the the pediatrician or the primary care. 
Okay. And as they as it gets to be approaches twenty degrees, it's usually when they come see me. Okay. Or they figure out who I am and they come see me earlier and I want to have a yeah, discussion. Yeah. Good. Um, and it, generally that is aerobic exercise, stretching, staying active, and really nothing to do. Got it. Um, you're going to watch their growth plates about every six months to a year, depending on, okay. on where they're at. Um, and if their curve hits 25 degrees, you know, that's my indication for bracing. Yep. Okay. Right? And that bracing needs, they need to have enough growth left that it's going to matter. Right? Yeah, in it's other not words, too they, late. Yeah, in other yeah. words, so you don't want them to have hit their peak growth trajectory, you know, which for females can be six to 12 months after their first menstrual cycle, you know, and, and for males, it's, you know, somewhere kind of 13, 14 years old, depending on where they're at. But we base this on, on looking at their one, either their Sanders scoring in a, a hand bone age x-ray okay. um, or two, looking at kind of the rate that their growth plates are closing within their pelvis it's called a RISR score. Okay. Um, as long as they've got a, a fair amount of growth trajectory left, um, we'll brace them. And yeah. Uh, you know, I never tell families that the bracing is going to resolve scoliosis, and the goal is always to keep it where it's at and stop yes. it from progressing. Yeah. Um, but on occasion, it gets better. Okay. Um, so, you know, bracing is good, kind of 25 degrees, and then as you get into, if the curve progresses despite the bracing, um, you know, lumbar curves, earlier, the earliest um, indication is about 45 degrees. Um, and then generally for a thoracic curve, the indication surgical is about 50 degrees. Oh yeah. Significant. So yeah. that being said, I still always tell families that it is somewhat of a cosmetic operation. Yeah. Uh, and in other words, so there's a, there's a guy in Pittsburgh who's been doing this now for a long time. He's at the end of his career and, and he really started to, to question scoliosis treatment surgically. Um, and start treating a lot of kids non-operatively. Yeah. Um, and now he's got a pretty fair number of kids in there that are now, you know, 30, 40 years old and a little bit older, treated non-operatively. Their curves progress just as we would expect, you know, and they might be 70, 80 degree curves. But what he's found is there's no problem with respiratory function, yeah. right? There's no problem with these patients having uh, an athletic prowess. There's no yeah. problem, you know, with these patients having more back pain than somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, there's no GI problems, but it's a, it's a, it is a cosmetic deformity yeah. that you go yeah. through your life with. So yeah. there's some, there's some impact um, on the child there. So I think it's still indicated, but I think surgery is a relative indication. Of yeah. That, that if okay. you really have to have that discussion. Okay. Does that uh, make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, Let's go over one more diagnosis, like our issue, I guess, would be hip impingement. You and I were kind of briefly talking about it before we got on, but I think I feel like the course or management of hip impingements changed quite a bit, at least in the early 2000s, like FAI or femoral acetabular hip impingement was recognized but not often managed surgically. Um, in the early 2010s, I was at the Stedman Philippon Institute, and we would just see all walks of life come in and just get hip scopes and it was like not even second thought where I think now people are maybe doing less of them. I don't know what the current outlook is, but I'm always just curious on what are the indications for that as well, where, you know, like people have shoulder impingement. We don't necessarily go in and scope out a shoulder 
Uh, do we sometimes scope hips too much? Do we not actually do justice if they have a lot of instability around the hip and we maybe scope it but don't get to like what's the true cause of the hip issue to begin? Are images the best way to tell just looking at bony growth? What are, what are the thought processes for having like a hip scope for impingement? Right, so another good question. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a big topic, right? So femoral acetabular impingement, you know, it goes under, I think, a greater topic, which is more hip dysplasia. And I think you really have to be careful. And we, we learned a lot in the last, you know, five to 10 years. I think we did a lot of hip scopes in 2005 to 2010. Yeah. Um, it was, I don't want to say it was cowboys, but it was kind of, you know, it was the early pioneers of, of yeah. hip arthroscopy. Yeah. I mean, we we were really just focusing on how to get into the joint. You know, I don't think we understood capsular management very well. I don't think we understood the position of the pelvis. I don't think we understood the different morphologies of the acetabulum uh, and how, you know, maybe that cam impingement or that extra bone in the femoral neck contributed. So I think we've gotten better about all those things. So, you know, first, I think... Absolutely, you've got to have uh, a hip preservation series of imaging. So, I mean, that's looking at a standing EP of your pelvis to see where you, you know where you sit in terms of um, you know pelvic tilt. Um, you, know, you got to be able to have somebody assess your acetabulum to see whether you've got you know protrusio, you've got a deep acetabulum, you've got a, a shallow socket, uh, and a more dysplastic acetabulum, and, and all those things are gonna let you understand whether the stability of the hip is coming primarily from the bone, right? In other words, the, you know, that kind of ball and socket joint, yeah. or is the stability coming more from, you know, capsular, labral, and muscular, you know, causes, right? In other words, if you've got a shallow hip, uh, your muscle and your capsule are doing, are doing a lot more yeah. to keep the yeah. hip stable. Yep. So, so that, I mean, that's the first thing to kind of sort out, right? And then, and then certainly there are people that have chronic impingement, right? They've got they've got cam morphology, they've got a you know a, a deeper socket, and you can very easily see that that femoral neck has been hitting the acetabulum over and over again and yeah. just peel yeah. that labrum off. Yeah. And, and certainly patients do well if that labrum is repaired and if you can remove that that extra bone or that cam impingement. But you got to be careful about the capsular management. Um, you got to be careful about whether they've got iliopsoas pathology. Um, you've got to be careful about whether they've got impingement somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? Do they have impingement between the greater troch and the and the acetabulum? Do they've got impingement between you know your ischio uh, lesser tuberosity yep. space? I mean, there's, I think there's it's a it's a complex question, and I think yes, hip arthroscopy is a good tool, but I really think you have to think you know, two, three times about it before you do it. In other words, a, a knee arthroscopy or a shoulder arthroscopy is a fairly, I don't want to say benign procedure, but it's fairly straightforward. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's fairly straightforward to get into the joint and and take care of the problem. A hip arthroscopy requires quite a bit more work, right? The hip has to be dislocated. The patient goes under traction. Um, the joint is much deeper. And, and just working within the joint is not quite as easy. So, yeah. Um, it just, and it's, I think it's a, I told people it's a four to six month recovery for a hip scope. So um, yes, I do them. Yes, I think patients do well. Um, but I think you, you really have to be careful about who they're indicated for because um, you can't put a patient through 
a procedure where they get, you know, maybe less benefit than than they might like. Is there a, Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I no, guess. that was great. Yeah. Is there a pediatric population, like age group, that you think would be best for it? Is it like the? It's not really an, an age group. Age doesn't because it's, it's not as growth platey. Is that fair, or do you have to think about that as well? Yeah, I don't. You don't really worry too much about the. I mean, you're not going to do a hip scope yeah. for a 12 year old. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But certainly, there are, you know, 16 to 18 year old adolescent patients yeah. that come with a labral tear. And, yeah. And that labral tear, you know, they need to have done usually three months worth of physical therapy at least. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and they've got to have, you know, basically no benefit. They've got to have a, an arthrogram that's got a pretty clear labral tear. Yeah. And yeah. I think fixing those labral tears are are definitely indicated as long as you can fix their capsule at the same time. Yep. Um, and the patient's going to go through the the appropriate rehab. Right? Yeah. They're going to stay off for, for four weeks. They're going to have access to a CPM machine to, yeah, move, their to yeah, yeah. move their hip and avoid a labral capsule or adhesion. Um, so, I mean, certainly the the indication is there, but it's, it's a little bit less so in the adolescent population. Because yeah. I, I do believe just like, the labrum in the shoulder, just like the meniscus in the knee. I mean, there is some element of healing. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's present in the adolescent. Yeah. And, and if we also, if, if we look at, you know, you and I or, or patients that are older in their fifties, yeah. we get we get an arthrogram of everybody. You know, I'm almost going to find some labral pathology on most people. Yeah. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's labral pathology that yeah. needs to be fixed. Yes. Um, but if it's affecting your, your daily life and your sports yeah. participation and you're, yeah. you're changing your life um, because of it and you've done the therapy and you're older and you've had an injection and that, that injection you know gave you appropriate benefit, yep. then I think it's a reasonable decision as yeah. long as you understand the consequences. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny to think about rehab that I was doing back then, how we would actually just do manual circumduction 20 minutes a day twice a day for these patients and just sit there and just move their leg <laughs> and then like two weeks later doc would come down and be like nope it's got to be 18 minutes now and then it, it just seems so <laughs> random the rehab was all over the place yeah. i think we've made some some good good headway there um let's finish with kind of like an overarching thing i think you probably already stated it but if you could get on like a, a soapbox and give like an overarching overarching message to pediatric patients as well as probably as their parents what are some things you feel like you say to most kids that if you could just make a public service announcement and hit everybody at once what's like one theme you would like people to be more aware of with their their health and athletic performance in that age group yeah i think we hit on it a little bit earlier i think the biggest you know buzzword i would use is just cross training and yeah and not taking yourself too seriously as an adolescent athlete i mean i think the the whole goal for athletics, I know for you know my kids and for everybody else is, yep. is just for them to have fun. Yeah. Right. And you know not to be focusing so hard on being the best in the world. Yeah. As an adolescent, um, I mean certainly that's a great goal, but you know, having a, a bunch of different experiences is just yeah. going to make you a more interesting person and a better athlete as you get older. Yeah. And for the parents out there, there's a good book called Range. Oh, my gosh, I'm forgetting the author right now. But he just actually goes over the strength of being a, a generalist. Uh, the story starts off as comparing Roger Federer to Tiger Woods, where Federer played every sport, even until he was, like, 18 or 19. And he's still playing tennis at a high level at, like, almost 40. Tiger Woods, we all know his story. He was, like, a professional golfer at two. He had a slew of other stuff going on that we don't need to get into. But still, regardless, his low back gave out. His knees gave out. Like, he couldn't keep up with it. Um, 
I think it's hard to appreciate when, you know, your kid's two other friends are playing on the club team and your kid feels guilty that he's not playing on the club team. There's a lot of peer pressure into it, but uh, yeah, yeah, like you're saying, the more cross training, general sports training you can give for the longer, the better. I do think there is a boiling point. I don't know what that is. Seventh grade where you do have to start to choose, but hopefully, hopefully it's not at second grade or, you know, the, the super young age. Yeah. Seventh grade seems a little early to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree. Yeah. The later, the better. Um, all right. So the last question that I ask everybody is, uh, theme of the podcast is optimizing your capacity on any and all fronts. What, what are you working on this year? And hopefully the soon to be post COVID world, if that ever comes, but what are you working on to develop yourself or, something you're doing business-wise or personal-wise or books you're reading? What are, you, what are you getting into right now? Yeah, my biggest thing is is balance, right? So, I mean, starting a, a practice at a fellowship is, you know, kind of an all-encompassing, all-encompassing thing. And I think you know, just like everybody else, I get out of balance and, and spend too much time working. So I'm trying to focus a little bit more on having more fun with my kids, getting outside, exercising more. Uh, and making sure I can do this job for the next, you know, 20, 30 yeah. years and, and continue to enjoy it. Uh, I think you're in the post-COVID world, you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the whole reason I got into orthopedics and pediatric orthopedics is I really enjoyed mission work. Um, so I've done a fair amount of, yeah. you know, going to the Dominican Republic or, you know, down to Central America to, you know, do deformity surgery on kids and, and really getting to the point where, where I've got a week set aside every every year where I just Great. go focus yeah. on doing that. So um, that's my biggest goal in the, ne- in the next year is to get that, that trip established. Yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know I learned a bunch. Um, if people want to come see you or see where you're at, like what practice are you working at, where are you located, where, how can people follow up with you? Yeah, so I'm at the center here in Bend. Um, you can Google the center Oregon. Yeah. You'll get a million different. <laughs> you just call the number and and feel free to come in and see me. I'm I'm happy to see, um, you know, patients of all ages. Although I try and uh, focus my practice on the, the pediatric and adolescent population, um, and the, the longer I'm in town, uh, the more my practice uh, is geared towards growing in that direction. Yeah, um, I also I do see some patients in Portland three days a month up at Randall Children's Hospital. So, okay, cool. Well, I appreciate it and. Uh... Yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime in the future. All right, anytime. All right. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, take care. All right, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get more information at capacitypt.com. Feel free to write emails to nickh at capacitypt.com. Follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, um, as well as... Uh, subscribe on the podcast on any and all platforms. Thanks for listening and have a good rest of your day.